Hi, I'm David Peskovitz. And I'm Mark Frauenfelder. And you're listening to For Future Reference, a podcast from the Institute for the Future. In every episode of For Future Reference, we talk with scientists and engineers whose forward-thinking research has the potential to transform our lives over the coming decade. Today on For Future Reference, we talk to Saul Griffith, a MacArthur Genius Grant winner and the founder of Other Lab, an independent research organization that explores technologies around robotics, solar energy, energy storage, advanced manufacturing, and many other areas. Saul's always been very interested in climate change and new technologies that could potentially alleviate climate change. And at Institute for the Future, this has been an area that we've studied since the very beginning. In fact, in 1978, our past president, Roy Amara, hosted one of the earliest convenings on global climate change and how it could impact our lives over the coming decades. I'm Saul Griffith. I work at Other Lab. I run Other Lab. Uh, it's an independent research and development company in San Francisco. Uh, we run nearly a dozen projects in science and applied science and engineering. Uh, nearly all of those projects are focused on uh, either technologies, uh, energy technologies to alleviate climate change or on uh, robotics and industrial automation. So, Saul, ever since I've I've known you, um, which has been a long time, uh, I, you know, you've always had a lot to say about climate and climate change, and also been very quick to have have ideas that I had never heard of how to try to alleviate um, some of the impacts. And it seems that you're still very active in that area. I'm actually working on writing a book at the moment about what we know about energy data and. If you were good at planning, how you would use that energy data to solve our climate problem. Looking at that data, I'm reading a huge amount of literature that was written on or right on or right about 1974, which is the year I was born. And that was just coming off the first oil crisis. And honestly, as you read these books, you realize that nearly all of the problems we say we face today uh, are familiar from 43 years ago. Uh, all of the proposed solutions are similar, um, and merely the motivation is a little bit different. In 1974, it was all about American energy independence and getting off foreign oil. Uh, now it's a little bit about that and a whole lot more about climate change. And the disappointing thing is that we've made very little forward progress in those 43 years. Why, why haven't we made any progress? Uh, I haven't written that chapter yet. <laughs> um, I think the environmental movement is young, and I think it has not necessarily fought the battles on the right trajectory. And I think this will ring true to most people. The way we've tried to solve climate change in the last decade is by consuming our ways out. Um, so, you know, if you buy LED light globes and a Tesla and uh, get a little solar cell on your roof, we're all going to be okay. Um, and really, that's not enough. You need infrastructure changes, you need policy changes, and you need all of those good purchasing decisions. And I don't think we've been honest about that for 43 years. Uh, and we've got some very loud voices for whom 
those solutions sound like destroying their business models. And so we have enormous amount of inertia, not only in the fossil fuel companies, but in the companies that make all of the objects of our everyday lives, who quite honestly probably aren't imaginative enough, imaginative enough to figure out how to survive in a world where we actually solve climate change. Is it because hydrocarbon fuels are, are so inexpensive that people don't want to, to pursue other ways to, to get energy? Is that the problem? I think that's an easy answer, and that's no longer exactly true. You can now buy wind energy and solar energy at industrial scale at the same price that you can buy natural gas and oil and coal. So I don't think that's all the reason. Uh, for transportation, where oil is very convenient compared to electric cars, that is a little bit true, but increasingly less true as we make better and better battery packs and better cars. Um, I also don't think it's true because for the majority of Americans, you, we spend a very, very small portion of our energy, of, of our money buying energy. Um, we spend a huge amount more on uh, healthcare, for example, and we could make some small concessions to price to have huge improvements in our quality of life, meaning the quality of our environment, but we're, we're not making them. Um, in the same way that most of us don't make great decisions when we're young about our health and then pay dearly at the very end of life, uh, which is part of the challenge in the healthcare sector. So is the problem then is corporate protectionism? Is, is that why we're not transferring over to renewable forms of energy that, are, that don't pollute like this or cause damage to the climate? We'd have to change a, a lot about the way we live. We just, we just don't seem to be willing. I've, I've been, I'm going to use or test some ideas on you. Um, I have this picture in my head at the moment where it's like a triangle and the fossil fuel companies say, hey, it's just the free market. It's not our fault. We're just giving you what you want. And then there's all the companies that make your cars and make your washing machines and make your detergents. And they're saying, well, we can't really change because the consumer wants what we want. And then the consumer says, well, I want those things. Why can't the government solve this? And then the government says, we'd like to solve this, but it's politically intractable. And our tax base from these fossil fuel companies and these other companies is large and they're big governance. So we were, the nice, actually maybe it's a four-pointed square with fingers pointing neatly in that circle and we're just stuck in that loop. We're unprepared to break free of that loop. So how, how do we break free? I think we need to recognize the problem for, for what it is, that you, you, you won't merely consume your way out. Most of the energy that you use is locked into your lifestyle by decisions you make once every decade. I mean, once you've decided on your car, once you've decided where you live, once you've decided where you work and how far your commute is, and once you've decided how big your house is, your day-to-day -day decisions don't make that much difference. So we've got to focus on making those infrastructure choices much better and writing policies that help people make those decisions at those moments much better. We need to price carbon into the economy if we really believe in a free market um, such that the, the market can help solve these problems. And so, you know, I, 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 it's, it's always been called a hard problem solving climate change, but it has to be the, all of the four points of that square uh, need, to, need to pull their weight and make some changes. So we sort of have to make a decision that we want to first. Technology can help. 
but it can't save you. We have to want technology to save us, and then it will do whatever we want. We have all the technology. It's it really, I mean, we, we could benefit from more technology that will make our lives better, but uh, we have enough to solve the problem. So that's, that's interesting because historically, I mean, it, your research has been on a variety of new kinds of technologies, whether they're related to climate and energy, um, you know, in, in wind power and, and new solar and things like that, all the way to robotics. But it's been about coming up with technological solutions. And this is one of the first times I think I've heard you say that we have the technology we need and it, it isn't uh, uh, as much a technological problem. Well, yeah, I mean, to be really clear, I, I, we, we work on, I started a wind power company called McCartney Power and a solar power called Sunfolding, and we are working on making wind power cheaper. We are working on making solar power cheaper, and we are succeeding at that. One of our new exciting projects is air conditioning and HVAC systems and refrigerators that are, use half as much energy for the same amount of performance, wow. uh, and we're making that cheaper. Uh, and you want all of those things to continually make it better. Um, and just like with electric cars, a lot of people are pausing from buying electric cars right now because they want um, they want more range. But we're getting gradually getting more range, and so you know we're, we're improving all those technologies. But unless we, you know, the time frame we need to change is, is twenty, thirty years at this point, and it's going to be very hard to do that against um, the incumbent technologies with without changing the rules of the game. Mm. Uh, are you optimistic, Saul? A little bit. Not a, <laughs> not a huge deal. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> I, I used to be a lot more optimistic. Um, I think I am now recognizing that we need to make more radical changes socially, politically, and even technologically than people wish uh, to think is the solution. What's at stake here? What is at stake here is the future of the planet that we all live on. Um, I think space travel is cool. I think going to Mars is cool, but that's not going to happen on a time frame that saves anyone except a couple of billionaires. So uh, we need to focus the mind on making this planet that we live on livable and workable for as long as possible, or just decide that the human project was a failure and give up. There's with the oceans have warmed a lot. The Earth's surface has warmed a little. The oceans are acidifying and threatening all of the, you know, the majority of the fish species. We're losing a lot of species uh, at a rate unprecedented in the geological record. And the capacity of the planet to support the human project is certainly under stress, uh, if not extreme stress, going forward. So what's at stake is... Um, is life as we know it, as we are, are comfortable with? And uh, do we wish to continue um, and, and what do we want the world to look like? I mean, we could all fight for the last scraps of food in a dusty bowl 100 years from now, but I think most people would prefer to think that the future is great. Uh, the future could be great, but we have to make big changes in order for it not to end up being that dusty bowl. And so... You you said that you are guardedly optimistic or a little bit optimistic. So you that that means you don't think that we're in some kind of a runaway situation where, as the planet continues to heat up, we're just releasing more greenhouse gases and we'll, we'll be in some kind of a positive feedback loop. We may already be there. There's no consensus that we're already there, but 
we certainly know that that is a possibility and that we're close enough that we should be greatly concerned. So I'm optimistic that we haven't jumped over that shark yet. Um, and I'm optimistic that humans can make good collective decisions and that there might be a pathway to a much, much better future. But I think we need to begin with a narrative of like, this is why the future will be great if we solve this problem. I think that's the other criticism of the environmental movement. It's usually been if we try really, really, really hard, we're going to be slightly less fucked than we would have otherwise. Um, <laughs> am, am I allowed to say that on radio? Sure. sure. <laughs> uh, as opposed to, you know, if we made these changes, this is how all of our lives would improve, our health would improve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's interesting. It's a different way of looking at, uh, of, of telling the story, which seems to be important when you're talking about, you know, the kinds of changes that need to be made, um, you know, being being about the choices we make and, and the technology will be there when we need it. I, I think that's absolutely true. And if you'll excuse a sort of circuitous detour here, one of my, you know, everyone, I, I think a lot of people around the world and in this country glorify the 50s, 60s, 70s as some perfect period. And we have to lock in all of the ways that we lived at that moment in time if we wish to have a decent life going forward. I think we have to remember that that was a blip in time and there were other ways. In thinking about how you know, there are ways where we can solve climate change and have better lives in the future, I've been asking a lot of my friends the rhetorical question, when do you think we got Saturday? When do we go from a six-day work week to a five-day work week? When did we go from a six-day work week to a five-day work week? I, yeah. I don't know. Was it in the 40s? Oh, uh, bingo. Uh, it was... It was roughly in the 40s. Uh, it was one factory that couldn't decide between Sabbath and Sunday because of the religious makeup of their workforce. It happened to be a unionized factory. Um, and once they said, hey, well, let's go from six days to five days, it very quickly spread across unionized America and then to Europe. And by the 60s, most of America and most of Europe had gone from a six-day to a five-day work week. This worked well because... Increasingly, we needed more consumers to buy stuff to keep the economy growing, and you needed a little bit more time off to use that stuff that you bought. And it was pretty easy to absorb it into an economy that had had such huge productivity gains from the, 19, from the 1870s, 1880s through to you know, the Industrial Revolution through to the 1950s. And so, you know, if you squint and you use your, your imagination and you want to be optimistic and positive... Right? We have all of this automation and robotics that is threatening people's jobs right now, and there's a lot of concern over that. Simultaneously, we're facing down this climate change problem. Um, a huge amount of energy is consumed in us driving around to get to work and back uh, and in various other industrial activities. It's not clear that you couldn't sell to a disgruntled public at the working class and the middle class end of the spectrum, which barely feels like they can afford to live as uh, as is, you know, extra days off and a better <laughs> and a better environment and more time off to spend with kids as opposed to being stretched single mothers having no time off at all. Um, and we got to be imaginative like that. Now, I'm you know, I don't know whether that that could that could occur something like that under the capitalist system, just as the six to five day work week under something that looks a little more socialist or somewhere in the middle. I think you could you know imagine there's a whole lot of political ways to skin it, but you can certainly look forward and imagine that we could change our 
behaviors and have a huge win for a huge portion of the population while also solving the energy problems associated with climate change. So it's going to require behavioral change, but it also seems like some of this is going to have to come from major policy changes too. Like you said, we can't consume our way out of it. That's right. And as individuals, there's only so much we can do about it. Um, what, what you're thinking about implementing policy changes, and if not in the U.S., then in other parts of the world where it might be able to make a difference? I spent the whole of my life growing up thinking America had all the answers, and I've worked and lived in America for the last 20 years. But perhaps of last week where you made Australians your newest enemy, um, <laughs> I'm now questioning whether America is the right place to run the experiments to have the answers here. Um, so maybe it doesn't happen in America. I still have hope for America and hope that it does happen here. Um, so I think the sort of policy changes you can imagine, and I know uh, Jim Hansen is in favor of this, which is um, a carbon tax and dividend, and certainly pricing carbon significantly enough that it changes our behavior with carbon-based fuels, uh, looks like a viable uh, free-ish market approach to solving climate change. And the dividend idea is that you, you pay back that carbon tax directly to the individuals in the public as opposed to keeping it somewhere in central planning. I think that's a pretty smart experiment worth running, and I hope that one or more countries in the world run that experiment. Um, I think there are slightly more centrally planned uh, policies that could be viable, and I can look stay you in the face and say I'm pretty good at physics, but I don't know that I'm great at politics and sociology so and economics, so I'm not sure that I can argue which one of those will work better, but I am pretty sure that we should be running a whole bunch of different policy experiments. Uh, and I see less willingness to run those experiments in different geographical scales uh, rather than more right now. I mean, this this is a global problem. So anything that's done, China and, and India, I imagine, are big factors in in what's going to happen or not happen. Yeah, and so now, you know, for perspective... When I started really diving into stuff 15 years ago, China was using uh, about a sixth or a seventh as much energy per person as America. It's nearly doubled since then. Um, India also is about a tenth. Uh, and it's, they, they desperately would like to use more energy to increase the quality of their lives. Um, one of the fastest growing areas of energy consumption in the world is air conditioning. Uh, and a lot of it in those two countries in particular, as they look towards having um, American style of luxury. So we want to see just as many experiments in different ways to solve this problem in those countries as we do here uh, in the U.S. And really, a lot of climate solutions are going to be very geographically localized because of the different local climates. So... You know, somewhere like the U.S., the policies that make sense in New England to solve climate change, where your real problem is storing up energy for winter, is very different than the climate policies you need in Arizona, where the real problem is uh, trying to keep the, the heat out of your house in the summer months. So the, the peaks are at different times of year, and the types of technologies you need uh, and the types of social change you need is very different in those places. And we're using too much of... Uh, 
one-stop shopping for policies at the moment, perhaps. Right. Well, Saul, this has been really fascinating talking to you about this. Thanks a lot for taking the time. And I'm going to continue to be cautiously optimistic. Thanks, guys. Uh, that was more depressing than I thought I'd come out of case with. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. That's it's okay, good. Though. It's important to talk about yeah. this stuff. All right, buddy. Thank you. Thanks so much, Saul. You know, we both know Saul for a long time. Yeah. He's like a super smart guy. So that's why when he wraps his head around something and becomes really interested and concerned about something, I am going to pay attention. Absolutely. You know, um, Saul's really been a pioneer in so many different areas, you know, maker culture for sure. Uh, soft robotics um, is another area. Uh, he was doing early stuff, I think, even around nanotechnology um, and uh, microscale engineering that was just phenomenal. Um, but, you know, all along, I, you know, he's always been, um, he's always ridden a bike everywhere. Um, you know, he's always talked about limiting his trips um, home to see his family in Australia. Um, you know, he's been a you know, pretty hardcore environmentalist, um, you know, for as long as I've known him. Yeah, he has. And um, it's interesting to see a scientist such as Saul get interested in policy. And I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's tough, but it has to be done. And, and I think if anyone can can make a change and an impact and, and make a convincing argument, it will be Saul. So I'm really looking forward to his book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just hope people people read the book. I mean, what really struck me is that, um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, technology is going to help solve this problem or we need better technology to have alternative fuels and, you know, and energy sources. And Saul's basically saying, yeah, we're, we're making progress in that, but it's really not a technological problem anymore. Right. And, you know, that's... That that really puts the onus on everybody to to change the way that we live, um, you know, in order to make a difference. Thanks for listening to For Future Reference. I'm David Peskovitz, and I'm Mark Frauenfelder. For more information about Institute for the Future and to subscribe to the For Future Reference podcast, visit iftf.org. For Future Reference is underwritten by a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation with production support from Parker Yesco and BMP Audio. Greg Fleischett composed the music.